welcome back to the Fearless Fly. This is episode 13. My name's Grant, and with me on the other end of the line is James. How are you, James? Hi, everyone. Not too bad. Uh, I hope you're all well. It's been a good week here. It's quite cold, but uh, I do like the, the cold weather. Oh, that's very good. Well, cold weather is what we need for wheels and brakes because when brakes are used, they do heat up a little bit on an aeroplane, which we're going to discuss in this episode. So this episode's about the wheels, brakes, and steering. In the previous episode, we discussed engines and the contrails, so I hope you found that interesting. It might have got a bit technical on the engines, but the basic thing is you can see that although they're very simple and the concept of how they operate, when you really get into the engineering and the really finer details, they are quite complicated. So this episode, we're going to chat about the undercarriage. It's an English term. Uh, the Americans call it the landing gear. I was going to say, yeah, some early manufacturers called it a lighting gear, which is a bit of a weird term, but practically it's just what the aircraft, they, they sit on when they're on the ground. But it's quite weird. So the undercarriage, everyone knows, is what the aircraft's on when it's on the ground, but they're just like wheels. Why are we doing a whole episode on them as such? It's worth dedicating an episode to this because of how they work and the thought that's gone into the complex design to make it so reliable. And of course, we all see the undercarriage or the, the landing gear. So yeah, so it would be worth dedicating an episode with it because there's a few complicated thought processes that have gone on to make it a very safe piece of the aircraft, but an important piece of the aircraft. So the approximate weight of a landing gear, it's, uh, these are rough figures around two and a half to five percent of an aircraft's maximum weight. However, the maintenance costs are around 20% of operating an aircraft, and this is because of a tire and brake wear. Those figures are just approximate figures. In earlier aircraft designs, like way back many decades ago, the undercarriage was fixed, and the problem was as soon as you got airborne, it was useless. It just now created a lot of drag, and the faster you went, the more drag it created, and as a consequence, this limited the ultimate range of the aircraft. So the ingenious aircraft designers came up with a cunning plan to reduce this drag by retracting it out of the airflow. However, this now made the undercarriage structure heavier and more complex as the intricate design of the retraction system now required components like hydraulic jacks and other cunning mechanisms to retract it out of the way. And of course, you needed a storage space that was out of the way that wasn't taking up too much room or space within the fuselage or the wing. But yeah, you can see from these days, the aircraft, you can see um, they've got a real streamlined shape. So it's going to be quite a, a challenge for the manufacturers to work out how to fit the landing gear and as such. Yeah, that's correct. And talking about the speed, you know, we talked about the speed, um, how it used to limit the range of an aircraft. Well, even retractable landing gear nowadays, they have a speed limit. And the speed limit we have for either attracting extended or extended or a combination of all. So in the Boeing 777, for example, the retract and extend speeds, 270 knots, 310 miles an hour and kilometers, 500 kilometers an hour. And uh, fast. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still quite fast. But as I say, it, it does create a lot of drag when we put that undercarriage down. If we're flying level flight, we put the undercarriage down, we need to put more power on, a fair bit of power to counteract the speed loss. The drag. Yeah. And anyway, so as aircraft get bigger, they need more wheels in order to spread the weight. And the reason for this 
is most airport runways and tarmacs, they have a limit load on them. Although this is extremely high and it can easily take the likes of heavy goods vehicles, however, the weight on a, like a, say, a fully loaded 777 tyre is significantly more than the weight of a heavy goods vehicle. So despite the fact that tarmacs and runways are built to withstand a higher weight, there is ultimately a limit load after which the tarmac just may fail, it may crush or something like that. As a result of this, they've invented a pavement classification number, and this is a reference that's used for the majority of airports around the world. I'm sure many people driving around will have seen there's the same sort of concept when it comes to the roads, and you'll often see uh, signs in sort of, sort of more rural parts of the world which state no vehicle above this weight can come on um, this road. And that's the same sort of concept there that heavy good vehicles, it's on a smaller scale, can also damage yeah. Uh, roads. Yeah. Yeah, so they have similar limitations, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the majority of aircraft nowadays, they have an undercarriage configuration that's called a tricycle undercarriage. And this is a nose wheel and a main gear. It's most of the aeroplanes we see. Uh, the other system they had in the past, it's still around light aircraft, is a tail drag configuration. So this is where the main wheels, they're in front of the aircraft, near the front of the aircraft, and the aircraft would sit on a tail wheel at the back. This tail wheel setup from many years ago was a great concept because it helped keep the propellers clear of the ground, but it caused a lot of difficulty when driving the airplane on, around on the ground because it needed a lot of pilot input and the aircraft was prone to going all over the place. Plus the high nose-up angle of the attitude where the pilot was sitting, it severely limited the pilot's view of where they were going. The tricycle undercarriage system is a lot more advantageous when the aircraft is sitting level like on the ground and it offers a lot better pilot visibility and is, is easy to move on the ground. And also you could brake harder whilst on the ground because... If you break in a tail dragger, it can nose over if you don't do it right. If you nose break too quickly, I believe is the case. Yep, that's right. And also the ease of loading because it's level. It's a lot easier to load. So we'll stick to the tricycle landing gear concept here. And the way that it's set up, it has a nose strut, which comes out from under the nose with a wheel or for a large aircraft, a number of wheels on it. And these are steerable. The main gear is generally situated in the area under the fuselage and the majority of the aircraft weight is resting on this main gear. The nose gear does have weight on it. It's been designed like that or if you didn't have weight on it, it might fall onto its tail. So most of the weight is sitting on the main landing gear. Now, the main landing gear is under the fuselage towards the center of the aircraft, but it's actually a bit towards the rear of what we call the exact center. And the reason for this is that the aircraft has a point on it called a center of gravity. And this is a point whereby if you could pick it up, it would remain level. Now, we wouldn't want to do that because we don't want it to be level. We used to want some weight on the nose. So where they've placed the main landing gear, it is towards the rear of the center of gravity point. So looking at an airplane, if you're now able to pick it up directly above the main landing gear, the nose would still be sitting on the ground. So that's the point at which the center of gravity is obviously forward of the main landing gear. And therefore, when a manufacturer builds an airplane, they take this into account that there will be some weight on the nose gear, but they have a forward and rearward limit. And the rearward limit 
if you loaded the plane up so it was tail heavy, it still wouldn't fall on its tail because of the way it's been designed. Does that make sense to you, James? So yeah, so in essence, what you're saying is you need the rearward gear to be behind the center of gravity. So if you picked it up by the where the, the rear gear is, it's going to tilt forward. So it's always on that front wheel and it's not just flipping up onto its tail the whole time. Yes, yes, that's correct. Very good. This is intentionally done to make sure the nose stays on the ground or else the aircraft would fall on its tail. Therefore, the weight on the aircraft nose gear will vary depending on how the aircraft is loaded. And some rough general figures, if the plane's loaded towards the rear of the centre of gravity, you could expect around 6% of the aircraft weight on the nose gear. However, if it's loaded forward, you're looking at around 22%. So let's just say nice and easy, uh, 15% of an aircraft's weight looks like a good and easy figure to work with. And we'll talk about this later on when we'll use this 15% to see how much weight is on a Boeing 777 undercarriage and its tyres. So the main landing gear consists of a strut, which is a support system, and it's generally attached to a part of the aircraft that's pretty strong. And this is what the aircraft is going to sit on when on the ground. And at the bottom of the strut is a shock absorber, and this is to soak up those bumpy landings or if taxiing over bumpy tarmac areas. Now, remember those tarmac limitations we talked about before? There is a limit to how much weight can go on each wheel. So at the bottom of the strut, the designers put a number of wheels to spread the weight. And this is what we call in aviation terms or engineering terms, the bogey. So James, can you give some examples of like modern aircraft in the yeah. main landing so- The most common aircraft, commercial aircraft, is 737, Boeing 737, Airbus A320. They have two bogies, and each bogey has two wheels. So they have four main wheels below the wing. And then the Boeing 777 also has two bogies, but there are six wheels on each bogie. So there's 12 tyres in total. Yeah, 12 tyres. And then the largest commercial aircraft in the world at the moment, the A380, has four bogies, two of which have six wheels. And the other two have four wheels. So that gives 22 tires in total. If my, is it 22? I believe. Yeah, Eight, got, uh, yeah, two, yeah. Or 20, 20 main yeah, tires. Yeah, yeah. yeah, main tires. It's the same. The triple seven's got uh, 14, but there's 12, 12 main ones. Yeah. So that's a lot of tires. The one thing that comes from this is as the aircraft get bigger, sure, you need more tires. But also with those more tires comes more issues to do with like how do you store them because they're all coming up into a retracted position and that's just take you away space within the uh the fuselage so yeah where do you store all these tires yeah well the nose gear is pretty simple and people figure that out it simply retracts into the fuselage however the main gear can be stored in the fuselage or in the wing or the likes of a dash 8 turboprop i think it retracts into the back of the engine cowl The general term for where the gear attracts is known as the wheel well. Uh, Most will have doors that close over them, and that's to aid in streamlining of the air. But the likes of the 737, you can actually see the main wheels because they're exposed, but they're tucked away into the fuselage. But if it flies overhead, you can see the two wheels. Well, the wheels there. And also, on the just on a side note, on really large aircraft such as the uh, A380, there's a big bulge around that bit of the fuselage where uh, they sort of extended the fuselage in width a bit to uh, help for the capacity of the uh, the gear there. Yep, yep, that would probably make sense. Yeah, yeah, that's probably bang on. 
So for retraction and extension, we would normally use hydraulic power, but electrical systems can be used. And there's various options for backup extension of the landing gear, say, for example, a hydraulic system failure. Yes, yeah, so we basically can see that as uh, these aircraft get larger and we need more wheels, there's more weight, as we mentioned above, spread on each tyre, and they need those more wheels so that they can meet the airport classification numbers, which we'll also discuss in a further episode about runway design and how those are, are affected, but that's in another episode. But yeah. just did you want to explain on the 777 sort of how much weight really is on the, each tyre? The 777 has three struts, so you've got a nose gear with two wheels on it, and like you said before, the two main landing gear struts with six wheels in each bogey. So at maximum takeoff weight, we're looking at just over 350 tonnes, and working on the fact that, let's say, 15% of that weight is on the nose gear, that means the nose gear strut would have 50 tonnes on it, and therefore each wheel because there's only two wheels, we'd have 25 tonnes of weight while it's sitting on the tarmac. For each main gear strut, has 150 tonnes on it. And that's six wheels, so divided by 150, so it's 25 tonnes on each wheel. So about the same weight on each wheel, uh, each nose wheel and each main wheel. And the main wheels are a lot bigger than the nose wheels. Yeah, I did some research for comparison. And in New Zealand, roughly, there's a lot of variables, but roughly the maximum weight per tyre on a uh, heavy goods vehicle is around four tonne. So that's still a lot less than what you're carrying on a 777, which is probably why you can't just make a road with the same strength and make it a runway because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be strong enough for your aircraft. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Now, the landing bit's interesting because uh, the maximum weight for landing on a 777 is just over 250 tonne. And thus, based on those calculations, we have 19 tonnes on each nose wheel and 17 tonne on each main wheel. However, the main wheels are the ones that are designed to absorb the impact as we do not land on the nose gear. So yep. despite they're taking less weight than the main gear, because of your landing on them, you could actually put up to three times as much weight on those main landing gears in a hard landing, which you're used to doing. Yeah, and, uh, oh, thanks. What, thanks. Then, I don't think my landings times. are that bad. I don't think my landings are that bad. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so although there's less weight there per wheel when it's taxiing in, the main gear below the fuselage there is designed to take the force of landing and it can be quite significant. For the nose gear, we just fly it smoothly onto the runway, so it should never get anywhere near the forces that are expected of the main landing gear. Now, the tyres themselves, like car tyres, they're made up of many layers, and these layers, they, uh, they do wear. As uh, with car tyres, such as the tread on them, they do get worn down, and uh, eventually you end up having to uh, change them. Yep, that's right. So when a certain layer shows, or it's, um, the tread is below a certain limit, then they get sent away to a specialist shop and generally they get retreated. And the interesting thing about the tyres is that we fill them with nitrogen. So it's not like the air in your car tyres. The reason for this, it reduces the chance of ignition from overheated brakes. And nitrogen is also drier and so it's less and it's less coefficient of expansion. So compared to an airful tyre, they will run a little bit cooler. But like a car tyre, like um my car is probably running around 38 PSI in pressure. What's the pressure of the tyres there on the, the 777 in comparison? Yeah, for people. To... 
Yeah, um, we inflate the tyres to around about 240 PSI for a 777 tyre. And how often would you say they get checked just quickly? We have gauges that tell us what the pressure is. But here's an interesting point. Some military aircraft that are involved in moving heavy goods around, etc., they can change their tyre pressure in the air. And the advantage of doing this is that if you lower your tyre pressure, you spread the weight and so you're not pushing down on the ground as much. So in effect, you've changed your pavement classification number by decreasing your tyre pressure because you've got a bigger area. The disadvantage, of course, is that it causes more friction for takeoff. But we leave ours around about 240 PSI. You've got, obviously, you're taking off extremely quickly. Are there speed limits on those sides? Like, would they just blow up if you... Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. There are limits, and the uh, limits are there to um, prevent a tyre failure. So if we exceeded the tyre limit speed, there's a chance that the tyre could fail, and this might have a negative effect on the tyres next door or the aircraft structure itself. So we don't exceed these speeds, and in fact, they're generally well in excess of what the aircraft would need to use anyway. So the 777 tyres, for example, the limit speed for takeoff is 204 knots. In mile an hour, that's 235 mile an hour or 377 kilometres an hour. And there's even a landing speed as well, and that's actually higher. The landing speed limit is 226 knots or 260 mile an hour, 418 kilometres an hour. So it's quite high, eh? That's, yeah, it's extremely fast. And obviously, you're going, say, I don't know, 150 knots roughly at landing. And to slow down, if you did that in a car, you'd, your brakes would not be happy. So do these wheels, do they have brakes on? Obviously yes. they do, but how, yeah. do they, how do they work? Yeah, they have brakes on all the main wheels. They are heavy and they're either generally the steel or carbon brakes. And the concept is extremely similar to a modern car of today. So... Based on your knowledge of the brakes, do you want to have a go explaining some of the basics that you know about braking systems in a car? Uh, so they have, well, the brakes on some cars, more modern cars, have an anti-skid system. So they'll increase or decrease the brake pressure on the particular wheel to prevent it from skidding, because yep. obviously in wet conditions or icy conditions, you could skid out as such. And then an aircraft, it's sort of, so you have a pedal, it's like on the top of your the top of the rudder pedals, you push them down and it's braking. So it's almost like in a car, the same sort of concept. You're pushing yeah. those, uh, the pilots or the, the brakes sort of to the floor. It's literally the same as in a car, but you have the left and the right in a plane. So you can brake on the left and the right individually, which I'm assuming also can help your turning when you're at low speeds. Yep. Um, but what else, apart from turning, does it have any other benefit being able to brake left and right separately? Yeah, turning's the big thing, but we generally apply them evenly. And like you say, they're on the rudder pedals on the floor and they're the top of the rudder pedals. So we use the top of our feet to push those. Maybe if you've got a steering problem, just say your nose gear steering failed, you've got some um, ability to steer with what's called differential brakes. But no, we try and keep them even. So another method of activating the brakes, and particularly on large aircraft, is a system we call the auto brakes. And there's generally a number of settings to the auto brakes. And most Boeing aircraft uh, that I've flown are similar. The Boeing 777, for example, has eight settings. We have a setting called RTO, off, disarm, one, two, three, four, and max auto. So the numbers and max auto refer to a deceleration rate that we as pilots can select 
And so after landing, the higher the number, the more brake is applied and thus the shorter the distance for landing. The RTO position stands for rejected takeoff, and I'll talk more about this soon. Anyway, the auto brake system is simply that. It's automatic, so there's no need for the pilots to apply the brakes manually by pressing the top of the rudder pedals after landing. We obviously can override them by pressing them. If I landed auto brake two and I wanted a quicker deceleration, instead of selecting auto brake three, I could just apply the top of the pedals and it would override the braking system. So as we said before, the wheels are made up of many layers and uh, they're only changed if they become out of balance or when the tread is worn. And that's dependent on many factors. Suffice to say, a wheel change takes around 30 minutes and it can be done with passengers boarding the aircraft. The steering of the aircraft is done via the nose wheel. You know a bit about steering. In a light light aircraft, you've got the rudder pedals. You push the left one down, it goes left, and you push the right one. It goes right, but also that will also control your nose wheel. I'm pretty sure on most light aircraft, just so you're you're pushing left, and the nose wheel is also tilting left, which uh, obviously makes you turn left. But in larger aircraft, they've got another tool to help you, so you don't just... Discuss yeah. the, uh, what you guys yes. use. Yeah, on a large aircraft, there's a tiller and we use for steering, which is generally a handle on each side of the cockpit and you turn it to the left, the nose goes to the left and the more you turn, the sharper the turn and it goes up to a maximum limit. There's also generally a wee bit of nose wheel steering through the rudder pedals, like a light aircraft, but it's very small compared to the nose wheel tiller on a large aircraft. So for example, the Boeing 777 steering tiller, we can move the nose gear plus or minus 70 degrees in either direction. But the rudder pedals, if we just did it through the rudder pedals, it would only move the nose gear plus or minus seven degrees in either direction. And as I said before, we can get a little bit of steering by applying differential brake. So if I just press the left brake at the top of the rudder pedal, the aircraft would pull to the left a bit. But we'd only do this if we needed to perform a really tight turn or we had a problem with the nose wheel steering. So I'm assuming you don't use that tiller on takeoff because if you yanks that nose wheel at 250 kilometres an hour, it's just going to it's gonna snap it itself off, I'm assuming. Coming yes, in, yep, uh, you're, yeah. you assume correct, yes. yes <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, just discussing uh, more into sort of the safety features and the contingencies of the landing gear, do you just want to discuss about sort of views those safety features. Okay, so yeah, good point. Right, so we taxi around the airport using the tiller. If we had to do a really tight turn, we'd slow down as much as possible. We'd use full tiller, press the brake in the direction we were going, and then put some power on the outboard engine, engine furthest away from the turn. So you could literally pivot around the inner main gear. Uh, that's the main gear that's closest to the point of the turn. But this it wouldn't be good for the wheels as they'd scuff on the tarmac and also has potential to damage the tarmac. So we, we very really do really tight turns like that. Taking off down the runway, only small corrections to steering are required. So like you mentioned before, we don't touch the tiller. Instead, we use the rudder pedals to keep us straight. For landing, we calculate how much distance we need to land and taxi off the runway. And then we set that deceleration rate accordingly on the auto brake system. And then we taxi into stand and we kick you all off the aircraft. Now, just coming back to that calculation for landing, we're also checking how much braking we are going to use. 
because every time we brake, the heat generated by the brakes will transfer to the wheels. And if the wheels get too hot, then the pressure and heat will build up in the main wheels. So the main wheels have a special fuse built into them that melts. And once they get too hot, these will melt and they're called fuse plugs. And the reason why we want them to mount is to release the pressure from the wheel so it doesn't explode. So what sort of temperatures are we talking for the fuse plugs to melt on the 777? The 777, they melt between anywhere roughly, I think it's 182 to 200 degrees centigrade or about 360 uh, to 390 Fahrenheit. So the tyre simply deflates and thus it won't damage the surrounding structure or area or people working around the aircraft. So it's just a safety precaution. And so we do a calculation, like I said earlier, and this is to avoid this melt zone. So to help us slow down, if it is going to get near these limits, we, uh, we use other things such as reverse thrust or we'd pick a longer runway upon which to land. Both of these items would then use less braking. These fuse plugs, like how many times a year would this sort of thing melt on a plane? No, not very often because you do your calculations before. There's even limits. I know the 380 has a few problems and some are taxing around. They have to have their brake temperature below a certain value before they take off, as we do on the 777 as well, because we have to think about the aircraft needing them in a case of a rejected takeoff. So there are limitations, but it's very rare that it happens. Um, I haven't heard of it happening that often at all. So you just mentioned a rejected takeoff. Uh, one of your brake settings, RTO, which also stands for uh, rejected takeoff. So what is that setting on the auto brake? Yeah, so that's preset before we take off. And what a rejected takeoff does once we bring the sus levers back, it goes to maximum braking to stop the aircraft. So in the very unlikely event that we do need to abort the takeoff run, the aircraft will automatically apply maximum braking possible. So if you're at the maximum takeoff mass, this can be quite exciting. Firstly, the brakes will do an amazing job at stopping the aircraft. And in the show notes, we're going to put a video of this exact scenario when they did the testing on the 777. It's a three or four minute video. It's really interesting. And you'll see these things, they're glowing very hot and the tires will deflate afterwards. So there's a good chance not long after doing a rejected takeoff at maximum takeoff mass that all the main gear tires will probably deflate once the brakes go above a certain temperature. That's that heat transferring to the wheels and those fuse plugs will be mounting. So they'll just deflate and that just prevents the tires from blowing up. The worst case scenario is a rejection, say, due to a fire that can't be contained. So you might end up going down those inflatable slides. A lot of fun for the kids to be had, but you only get one go at that. The likely scenario is that they'll have to tow the plane off the runway and get some portable stairs to get you off the aircraft. A low-speed reject might mean a system reset, and so you can have another go at it. Rejected takeoffs are very rare and um, and generally the result of a malfunction. So with a malfunction indication, the best option is to abort the takeoff and stay on the ground and get it fixed. You don't have to worry about it in the air. So they do happen, but they're not that big an issue. So regarding some of the redundancies in place, things happening such as the wheels deflating, 
is it like a car where you can still you could still drive a car if the wheels are deflated so it's not going to be very good for the car can you still taxi around or land the plane with the tires deflated yeah, so if, say, a nose tyre or a main gear tyre deflates, we can still land and taxi around. We'll obviously do it a bit slower. But if, say, both nose gear tyres or a few main gear tyres deflated, we'd just probably bring the aircraft to a stop on the runway or nearby taxiway and then we'd get towed onto stand. The towing's a bit slower and they can watch what's going on outside. Uh, what other things have we got here? Contingencies like um, hydraulic system is, um, as I said, it's generally used to retract and lower the gear. However, in the very unlikely event that, say, the hydraulic system that powers the landing gear has a failure, we've got backup methods. The triple seven, for example, we have an alternate gear switch, and what this does, it uses a wee bit of residual hydraulic pressure, and it's got its own little dedicated small hydraulic pump and it releases the up blocks that hold the gear doors up and the up blocks holding the gear up. And the gear just falls out, gravity takes over, and there's also ear loads on the gear, and they help extend the gear into the down and lock position. So your longer 777s, the 300 and 300ER, they have a little tail skid at the uh, rear of the fuselage. What is it? Like, what is, yeah. what's it for? Yeah, there's a tail skid on the um, on the earlier 777-300s. There was also one on the Concorde, if I remember right. They had little wheels on it. But um, they're at the rear of the fuselage underneath, and this is to prevent hitting the tail on takeoff. So it's in case the pilots have rotated the aeroplane into the takeoff attitude too quickly or they've messed up the landing and they're going around. So in the case of the 777-300ER, this tail skid is put in the extended position when we select the gear down and when we select the gear up, it moves to the retractor position. However, the interesting thing on the later 777s, there isn't one of these. Uh, the fly-by-wire system will actually limit the pitch attitude on takeoff. So as a result, the later 777s, they don't have a tail skid, which is a significant weight saving. So now you can, in theory, you can yank your yoke as hard back as you want and it won't physically just let you hit the, uh, the tail into the ground. Uh, that's correct. Um, I don't want to try it, though. <laughs> <laughs> and what a, you said a significant weight saving. How big is that? I think uh, it's around about 150, 180 kilograms. Uh, just over oh, that's the, yeah. that's quite, a, quite a bit when you think yeah. about it. And it's got a bit of drag and, there as yeah. well. So there's no drag there because it did stick out a little bit even in the retracted position. So, yeah. Um, what if a wheel catches fire then on takeoff because of like a brake? It wasn't, it was malfunctioning and locking up. Like, what? Yeah. What yeah. Do? It's a good point. So, um, if we did have a wheel fire, either air traffic control would tell us, or after retraction, there are heat sensors in the wheel well. So, we'd get an indication on our instrumentation. And the basic process off the top of my head without going through the checklist is we just extend the um, gear into the airflow and the file will go out. Sometimes on certain aircraft, the brakes can get really hot from taxiing around and the procedure is to leave the gear uh, extended or maybe extended if you've got an overheat indication for a while after takeoff. And this just lets the cool airflow going over them. It just helps cool them down. Some of the aircraft, you see they have brake fans. So after they land, they take them to stand, they put brake fans around to help cool the uh, landing gear down. So I'm sure a lot of people at this point, they've heard that there are alternative ways for the landing gear to come down. But what if, worst case scenario, just can't get the landing gear down or, or they, it says they've come down, but none of them have actually come down? 
we have a indication in the cockpit when we put the gear down. So three greens is, would be the indication that the nose gear and the left and right main gears are down. So a gear up landing. So what we'll do, we'll burn off fuel as much as possible for two reasons. One, to lighten the load of the aircraft and uh, also less fuel means there's less chance of fire, just say a bit of metal pierce the um, fuel tank. So we'll just reduce the chance of a fire. Suffice to say, a total gear up landing, it'll cause damage to the underside of the fuselage and probably the engines if it's sitting on the engines. And if we were to do that as a precaution, we'd use the escape slides to get you off the aircraft in case sparks had ignited any fuel. But it's a very low chance. Uh, 767 landed some time ago for a Polish airline. They couldn't get the gear down and it was no problems. Uh, the deceleration will just be similar to heavy braking in a car, probably. But uh, if just say we couldn't get one gear down, uh, say the left main gear, would land on the other gear, would expect a bit of directional control after touchdown. So once again, we'd burn fuel off, look for a nice long runway. And depending on which gear had failed, we'd probably elect to land on one side of the center line just to help with directional control after uh, landing. And that directional control, as we said before, would be using the brakes, differential brakes, to stop the aircraft slewing around towards the gear that had failed. So every manufacturer has different recommendations. Suffice to say, there'd be more sensationalism for the media. And the reality is, for the few times this has happened in the last 30 years, no one has ever been injured. All the passengers have walked off the aircraft with a good story to tell over dinner. Yeah, you can see. Uh, if you just go and Google it, there's, there's a few instances, but all the planes are intact, sort of sat on the ground. No one's injured, so it's not a, a bad thing at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that concludes episode 13, discussing that the wheels brakes and how aircraft steer on the ground. I hope you guys found that informative. Uh, the next episode, we're looking into retarding devices, engine reversers, and brakes. So we're going into a bit more detail on the, the braking system of the aircraft, or is that speaking nah. about air braking? So we're just looking at things that slow us down, and we've pretty much hammered the brakes. So we'll just be talking about what effect the spoilers and speed brakes have, and, and also a little bit about how the engine reversers work, because there are different options between power aeroplanes and jet aircraft. So we'll go into a little bit of depth about that. It won't be, that'll be fairly short. So we might do that discussion about me. You're going to interview me. I've finally grown up and want it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, James. Well, hey, it's been good chatting to you. It's been interesting. And uh, there's interesting uh, discussion about the weight on the vehicle wheels and all that. So it's been a good podcast. So Yeah, it's been a good one. So from me, it's been uh, nice to chat to you. And from James. Thanks for uh, listening. I hope you learned something. Don't hesitate to get in contact with us through any of our social media links or through our website. And I hope you have a good day wherever you are on board.